Welcome to Empathy Power Up, a collaboration of two people who connected during the pandemic through their love of empathy and action. Two people from very different backgrounds, helping each other find ways to love themselves, understand their experiences better, and help reverse the rise of narcissism and the divides in our communities. We will cover various topics about the human experience to help us power up on tools of empathy and emotional intelligence in the pursuit of one simple goal, create a world where people seek to understand themselves and each other. This is a learning journey amongst fellow humans. We're all just figuring out life together. She listened intently and said, I would get involved, but I'm not your mother. We've all felt it when we come to someone to talk through a challenge we've been having, and then they deflect and don't actually help you solve that problem, or sometimes they don't really acknowledge you at all. That's what happened one day um, when I was in the final weeks of preparing for our upcoming innovation festival. About two weeks before the big day, I was in a virtual meeting with the with our team to go over logistics, and we took turns giving each other updates. As I finished mine, another female team member, she started stated to the group, "You know what? I've been thinking that you have been have too much on your plate, and I am leading this project now." As I was, as she said that, I was shocked and embarrassed, and. She had right, no right to tell me in front of all of these people, like what was happening. And, and I felt inadequate. I felt bullied. I really sat there for several seconds in disbelief that I couldn't really respond. And after a few back and forth conversations, it was clear we were not getting anywhere and I didn't want to fight in front of everybody else. And my teammate finally said, if you have a problem with it, go talk to Christine, which was our senior manager at the time. So later that afternoon, I marched into that manager's room and I I talked to her about that power play and how unprofessional the interaction was. And I was hoping that there was going to be a more empathetic way to resolve this conflict. And for example, she could have just said me, come to me personally and had a conversation about it before she announced it publicly. And I was not met with sympathy. And that's when I heard that line about not wanting to get involved because she was not my mother. So you might wonder why I show up sometimes paranoid in the workplace for this very reason. So for this week's episode, we're going to dive deeper into this topic of safety and security, which are two human needs for the workplace under protection from harm. And this is described in the Surgeon General's framework for mental health and well-being. This framework, it helps to underscore the inextricable connection between the well-being of workers and the health of organizations. And it's a foundation for us to be used for workplaces everywhere to create sustainable change. But the people who are leading this work are going to be the committed leaders and the people who are doing the work at the end of the day. So, and 
it identifies that the most important asset of any organization is, is its people. And we have to choose to center our voices and everyone has a platform to thrive. So that's centered on that workplace voice and equity. These five essentials that are in this, this platform support workplaces as engines of well-being. And each essential is grounded in two human needs shared across industries and roles. So in a bigger way, workers manage daily stress that affects our health and organizational performance. These stressors arrive from heavy workloads, long commutes, unpredictable schedules, limited autonomy, long work hours, low wages, and so many other things. These workers may face challenges in the workplaces as, is, as a hostile or dangerous working conditions, harassment, or even discrimination. And research suggests that five workplace attributes are more predictive of whether work, workers refer to their organization's culture as toxic. And those five workplace attributes are disrespectful, non-inclusive, unethical, cutthroat, and abusive. And so all of this has been leading us to chronic stress and an overactivation of the fight or flight response. And it can have negative effects on our organ systems in the body. It, it disrupts sleep, increases muscle tension, it impairs metabolic function, and also it can increase our vulnerability to infection, the risk for diabetes and other chronic health conditions. So there's also a number of other things that are linking us to both physical um, harms that cr are created when we're not, we don't feel safe and secure. So high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease, obesity, cancer, and various autoimmune diseases. So it also can contribute to mental and behavioral health challenges, including depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, and substance use. And it ha can have negative effects, ne negative effects on the mental health of the children and families of people who we work with. And these role conflicts can magnify psychological stress, including risk for health behaviors, you know, smoking, unhealthy dietary habits, the list goes on and on. So the first essential in that framework of the five pieces that came from the Surgeon General is called protection from harm. And this essential rests on two human needs, which is safety and security. And more than two in five workers surveyed by the American Psychological Association in 2022 reported that health and safety concerns have negatively affected their stress level at work. All the lists you shared, it's, it's, it resonates with me strongly because I'll share this personal story for myself. I worked in a workplace where I felt deeply unsafe, deeply insecure, and a lot of the stress-related things that you mentioned, mental health, suicidal thoughts, couldn't sleep, drinking a lot, alcohol, and all these different things. And I would get sick often, like my my throat was chronically sick and I, as I was traveling a lot. And so 
it's it's very personal to me and like your story i think all of us have a like a lot of us have similar stories of this not feeling safe not feeling secure because sort of culturally that was pushed down in a big like generation after generation it was you work and that's it and and there was it, it it's more like oh you're doing i'm doing you a favor by giving you a job type situation right so in in my in my journey, um, I worked at this company and I was wholly committed to it, and I gave myself my all of myself to this company, and I had a, I got a boss that, um, generally I felt great, I felt supported, I, I and then I've got a new boss and he was just incredibly difficult to follow in any way because he was just. Coaching was on off his, what he told me did not align with his boss. And then so created conflict that again, put blame on me instead of taking uh, covering. And I felt abused and treated terribly. There were moments where he called me on the phone and he would say things like, you better say these words back to me and nothing else. And, and you are such and such kind of a person. And you, you always just are standing up and, so what it did is it, when when we feel threatened, our reasoning goes away. And so it creates this challenge of now I have to do this high stress, high impact, high risk job with someone that is abusing, that I feel unsafe with, that I cannot trust. And so that lead to all these physical and mental challenges. I felt isolated. I I was crying. It was just, it was a, it was a hard time for me. And what was interesting is I went to HR, I went to the CEO, I went to the leaders and nothing happened. In fact, I was, I was punished for saying you are doing a terrible job since then I've been doing a great job, but now I'm doing a terrible job suddenly, right? Because I've gotten all the promotions I'm, I'm getting, I've got a, contract worth millions of dollars but i'm now suddenly doing a bad job and i resigned and i in that company i had a team of 100 percent women because everywhere else were men so i said well i gotta i gotta figure out how we can bring in different perspectives that can be impactful but i was afraid when i was leaving i was like now all these women are going to have to directly report to this person and i wasn't the only case so many other people that had worked for him, I had conversations with felt similarly. And they had also complained and nothing happened. And so I told my team, I said, document everything. I gave them my story and I said, I didn't document everything and this is where I am. And luckily one of them did. And a year or so later he was fired, but the leadership wasn't. They were all part of this, part of this challenge. So what it did is it took someone who was great, made them bad, and 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 really created an environment where no one could thrive. And it just we the company suffered. We all suffered. It was just not a place, the safe place. I didn't feel safe and secure. And we all know these aren't isolated stories. This is something that people are still facing daily in their workplaces and their lives. Some people may not feel safe in their families. Queer people, queer youth, and a lot of families don't feel safe and they don't feel secure. And then there's women, there's all kinds of people that also have that. So what we are learning today here can apply in our personal lives as well. And 
so diving deep into this framework uh, the, of workplace mental health and well-being from the Surgeon General, the first component for a healthy workplace that supports our well-being is one that prioritizes workplace physical security and psychological safety. And the framework talks about, so from the framework, it says, workplace safety means all workers are in a safe and healthful work environment, protected from physical harm, injury, illness, and death. This is done through continued efforts to minimize occupational hazards and physical workplace violence, as well as psychological harm, such as bias, discrimination, emotional hostility, bullying, and harassment. Security builds on safety to include financial and job security, given the negative effects that layoffs and job loss can have on the workers and their families. And it's not just the people who are leaving, it's the people who are staying as well. And the other aspect of, I think, the security, uh, besides having a job in financial security is in our system is medical security, which because a lot of us are tied to that. And so it's all of these um, non-tangible chains that are locked us into those unsafe work environments because if we leave, we can't get a job, and especially in the job markets that are different, it just becomes a really uh, challenging situation. And because health insurance is tied to our work and and re retirement is tied to our work and so much of our life is tied to that company, it's very difficult. These are chains that exist. So the mm -hmm. framework continues. Mitigating harmful impacts in the work environment begins with a review by employers of all existing occupational health and safety legal requirements and their own workplace policies and conditions to ensure standards and regular compliance. There are numerous resources and validated tools from the CDC and OSHA that organizations can use to guide these efforts. Organizations can request technical assistance, education, training from OSHA for information on legal requirements and periodic guidance on monitoring of implementation of policies and measures to protect worker health and well-being. So as part of my work at uh, building empathy with companies, I work with a major global pharmaceutical company and I went to their offices couple of times and one of their locations. And I saw how important physical safety was as a priority. They were proactive about it. They were, it was a key part of the culture. Their number one thing was physical security because they are in a generally place where that could potentially be really harmful. And a moment of that being demonstrated to me was um, as I was walking back after doing the workshop, feeling great, walking to our car, I stepped off the sidewalk where it wasn't a crosswalk, just to, I was just slightly away. And almost instantly, a guard just shows up. I don't know how it happened far away and said, waves me and says, get back on the sidewalk and use like the crosswalk. And I was like, that is good. I, even though I was sort of reprimanded, I, I felt great because this was showing that physical safety and workplace safety was paramount in the space. And now they were doing the work to build a psychological safety is what I was doing with them as well. So it's, it's a really great uh, um, story in, because I reflect on that a lot because I talked a lot about psychological safety, but this framework really also elevates the physical safety and security that's important. Leaders at all organization levels can collaborate with worker, workers to examine and eliminate workplace hazards and then design, implement, and regularly evaluate programs for workplace safety. So as we are returning to office, more and more companies are are pushing to bring back the in-person collaboration culture. Physical safety also includes flexibility when people are sick so they can stay home and work from home and rest. It used to be, I used to go back to work. I was push myself. I had a sore throat and I'm like, oh, I got to go to the meetings. I got to do it. But 
part of physical security and is not just me being sick, but others being away from me so I can heal and they can not get it. Mm-hmm. And and something I, I'm thinking about it too is like, is physical, you know, physical safety is like, um, is not getting sick or getting other people sick. And I've heard so many stories of people um, just showing up at work because, you know, like they're not, they don't want to take a day off or a sick day because they either don't have sick days or they're just like so tied to the work and feel like there's, there's fear that they might lose their job. Mm-hmm. And I certainly feel the thing that resonated with me when you said that was that idea of like security um, on, which is safety um, with is like fine, just not financial security, job security, but like health insurance. I think if we had universal health insurance, for example, we would be able to to feel like we could move to other places and not feel so beholden to a company in a bigger way. So there's there's so much there that we <laughs> we have to unpack. Um, and I think workplaces have to unpack there. Yeah. Um, the second part of the, this component we talk about is psychological safety, which is I think is also important. Psychological safety is the belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes. It's that's what I how I understand psychological safety. It's it's being able to show an employee's oneself without fear of negative consequences of self-image, status, or career. So as we can say, like if I come to work with my hair colored, or if I come to work and dressed in a professional women's dress. Um, my job is not going to be threatened. That, or I can speak up about my weekend with my partner, and my I, I'm not going to lose that promotion. And it can be defined as a shared belief that the t- team is safe for interpersonal risk taking. And I think that in 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 psychological safe teams, members feel accepted and respected. And and this comes from um, even this sort of science backs us up through ancient evolutionary adaptations explain why psychological safety is both fragile and vital to success in uncertain interdependent environments. What are uncertain and interdependent environments? Our workplaces. We are interdependent, our families, our communities, and they're uncertain because every day we're figuring out what's next. The brain processes a provocation by a boss, competitive uh, coworker, or a dismissive subordinate as a life or death threat. The amygdala, the alarm bell in the brain, ignites the fight or flight response, hijacking higher brain centers. This act first, think later brain structure shuts down perspective and analytical reasoning. Quite literally, just when we need it the most, we lose our minds. While that fight or flight reaction may save us in life or death situations, it handicaps the strategic thinking needed in today's workplace. Um. When we feel threatened, when we're feeling high stress, we and that creates the cycle, like because our reasoning and analytic, analytical skills are sort of are put in the back seat. And the driving seat is fight or flight, as you said as well earlier. Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina has found that positive emotions like trust, curiosity, confidence, and inspiration broaden the mind and help us build psychological, social, and physical resources. We become more open minded resilient, motivated, and persistent when we feel safe. Mm. So this this brings me to like, so to create psychological safety, we have to first understand that 
this is there is no such thing as a hundred percent safe place or safe space. It is a continuous journey. It's iterative. And it's the work we have to do to understand and then iterate on the mistakes and learn and try different things to make it safer. Having the intention of being safe and then making sure you have the tools to measure, to check for feedback is important in that journey. The Some of the key tips I would bring in is role model vulnerability. Be the human and speak to a human. Um, approach conflict as a collaborator, not an adversary. Replace blame with curiosity and ask for feedback. I think these couple of tips can really help towards that iterative journey of building psychological safety. Um, these are all based on the respect of the need to be included. We want to learn, we want to make mistakes, we want to improve and challenge the status quo and have the autonomy to make meaningful contributions. All of this helps us build psychological safety. So Amy, what's the next component? <laughs> Yeah, I, I love that idea of the psychological safety and um, conflict as a collaborator, as a as opposed to an adversary. Is that if if we take um, this idea of conflict as something where it's something to lean into and see somebody, the other person on the other side, as someone that I can can relate to, and it makes me think about an um, empathy in cognitive empathy is like taking somebody as her else's perspective and staying out of judgment um, is really a key component to those that piece. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you start seeing this person as with curiosity, this feeling of like, instead of blaming someone, you get into a place of curiosity, you're able to be like, why is that person acting this way? You know, mm -hmm. and and um, and also that 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 curiosity allows you to get to a place where you can be compassionate and care for that other person. So that kind of pays it forward. Yeah. So the the next thing that happened that that is explained in the the framework for mental health and well being in the workplace is about enabling ad adequate rest. So. I looked at some of the data here and some studies show that workers around the world are putting on an average of 9.2 hours of unpaid overtime per week. And just a few years ago, that was 7.3 hours. So co-working spaces, I certainly have been um, somebody to do this. Co-working spaces are filled with posters urging us to rise and grind or hustle harder. <laughs> Um, billionaire tech entrepreneurs advocate sacrificing sleep so that people can change the world. And I'm putting that in air quotes. And since the pandemic hit, our work weeks have gotten longer. We send emails and Slack messages until midnight as our boundaries between our personal and professional lives kind of dissolve in between that. And what I'm looking into is and then thinking about and research is showing is that millions of us overwork because somehow we think it's exciting. It's like a status symbol that puts us in this path to success, whether we define that by wealth or like this Instagram post um, that makes it seem like we're living this like dream life with a dream job and a dream car. And when we romanticize this work, is a especially common practice in like knowledge workers, people who are like white collar workers in like middle and upper class 
folks. Um, and in the New Yorker in 2014 called this a devotion to overwork a cult, right? And so the glorify this lifestyle, the lifestyle is you you do you do work um you go to you wake up and you do go back to work and then you go to sleep and it's like this cycle over and over again and overwork isn't just a phenomenon that's in silicon valley or wall street Um, people work long hours all over the world for many different reasons and many societies glorify overwork to that point of burnout Um, And as our work ticks up and up and up in the pandemic, um, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of signs of stopping. (laughs) So so are those suffering from spending two hours on the clock will only increase. And I was learning recently um, that in Japan, the traditional work culture emphasizes extreme dedication to one's work. And so many Japanese employees are unhappy it's in fact, it's the world's second most vacation deprived workers overall. Um, and Japan is ranked in job happiness index, the lowest among 30, 35 different countries. So in Japan, um, their desire to be on the same level as its Western counterparts, they have a collectivist mindset and there's a lot of convenience in Japan And this acute dedication to one's work has even resulted in this thing called koroshi, um, or literally translates to death by overwork. Koroshi is a product of extreme exhaustion, stress, and frustration from working. And this term gained traction um, when Matsuri Takahashi um, happened in 2015 to take her life um and it but a decade it goes back many decades and so you know i i can relate to that those feelings of overwork of like feeling like my my life is my job and you know there's so much more out there than that right and so what what happens when you overwork is you're sleeping less you're barely exercising you might be eating unhealthy foods and you're smoking and drinking to cope right or like a different kinds of addictions that are out there. And, and overwork is a risk that accumulates over many years. So, and if we can prevent it from becoming a chronic thing in our lives, it can redu- reduce the severity of the work health risks. And um, so some alarming new research also shows that people working more than 54 hours a week are at a major risk of dying from overwork and that it's killing three quarters of a million people each year. So in other words, it's 750,000 people per year are dying as a direct relation, uh, direct correlation to overwork. And the U S is the only country in, in all 38 developed countries that make up the OECD Um, And it has no statutory minimum days of annual leave from work. So how do we overcome this this barrier, right, of, of overwork and how do we rest? So it really falls on the employers and employees in some way. Um, you kind of need to work together to re- rein in overwork 
and also issues that follow. So to overcome it, um, workplaces should probably embrace flexible work and other ways to improve balance in work schedules, not make people return to the office. Um, we're seeing that in like the workplace empathy report that that is like causing a deep decline in empathy and compassion in the workplace. Um, so increased education and screening to prevent heart disease. So workplaces can do that. And on the individual side, we can put try to push back against overwork and being always on call. So how do we get to set more boundaries? And if your workplace doesn't allow you to, doesn't care about those boundaries, that's a sign that that's not a good place for you. And then also there's this level of government. So we can place limits on the number of hours worked um, and we can enforce and those look at those roles. Um, so yet one thing is really different. Um, we understand far more about these consequences of overwork and we know, know specifically as we emerge from the pandemic. So would this be a chance for us to change and to be different? And one of the stories I wanted to bring in is this feeling of Trisha Hershey. Um, she is the is affectionately known as the Nap Bishop, and she runs the Nap Ministry. And recently she published a book called Rest is Resistance, a Manifesto. And she she wants to free ourselves from this grind culture to reclaim our lives, our power, and also, in a bigger way, she wants to resist systemic oppression. And rest is resistance is the phrase that her and the NAP ministry talk about. And she wants to create sacred spaces where liberatory, restorative, and disruptive power can rest and so we can rest and take hold. So at the end of the day, um, one of my favorite posts <laughs> um, that I have read from the NAP ministry is, um, <laughs> is, is this idea of capitalism lied. Your worth is not tied to how much you produce. We will rest. So, <laughs> um, so, and the, finally, what she says is I'm at the end of the day, she says, I'm wondering where we can find tenderness softness, alignment, and rest. Aren't we all tired and we want oh, to rest? <laughs> I'm tired. Yes. <laughs> and I'm, one of the things I learned was that boundary setting. I, I If you have a, pr a privilege to find a workplace that respect those boundaries, I think that's amazing. Like one of the boundaries I've set is no work on my phone. I don't put my work emails or Slack on my phone. And that creates clear boundaries and time boundaries and things like that, that really uh, enable this rest. And I'm, I'm one of the things maybe that comes with age, maybe that comes with space and time and privilege and all these things, but I am focusing more on rest and I did read the book and I loved it. <laughs> um, so the next one we talk about, the next component is normalize and support mental health. I think this one is pretty pretty uh, loud in our zeitgeist, so we're not going to spend too much time on this. But really, it's this I, this concept that workplaces need to normalize and support mental health, like mental health days or providing services and resources you know, for for people to get. Again, unfortunately, I'm saying the work company needs to provide services, which I rather be like the system and the social system would should do that rather than the company, ideally. Um, 
but in general, the organization organizations can further normalize and support health, mental health while decreasing stigma at work by validating challenges, communicating mental health and well-being as priorities, and offering both support and prevention services. Um, leaders and managers throughout an organization must be supported to create a culture of inclusivity and to normalize mental health care. This culture includes modeling, communicating, regularly promoting, and supporting workers' access to services throughout all channels of worker engagement. So this is from the what I just read is from the framework itself, which is really um, helping us show that as a workplace and healthy workplaces, healthy communities, we normalize that we all have bad mental health days. We all go through journeys and and normalize that so that we can then give each other the support needed and the space needed to to take the get the rest and do the healing. Um, in fact, the one thing that I, I I sort of one idea that I talk about in it, and this was also um, explored in the TV show Severance on Apple TV, is the idea of keeping our work life and our personal life and a work person and meant like our personal person separate. And in fact, in Severance, they they really just physically cut it off. And then even in there, it shows that we cannot. We always bring who we are in all spaces, even if we mask it. And, and so if we don't normalize it, then all we're doing is creating more of an unsafe environment for us to express that we have a bad mental health today. And that may impact our productivity or our output or our reasoning skills or various things. But giving each other the space to to do that can be really, really impactful. Um, so we can't separate ourselves. So we are complex humans, and organizations, cultures need to understand that for workers to be productive, normalizing the complexity of human and our mental health, and providing support for it is essential. Um, I hope this is not just at a company level, rather supported at a government level and through social services, ideally, because. Again, I don't want to keep tying everything to the companies because then all those chains just get harder and harder for us as well. We have a deficit of mental health professionals and the services are not easily accessible. So that's another highlight that we have to understand. And these mental health apps, I'm I'm currently not convinced that they really are helping um, general because it's complex. We need humans to talk to humans in that space. And it is expensive currently to access mental health services and differs based on companies and the cultures and the communities and the states we are in and all these different things come in. Someone, I am I feel I am privileged and even I feel very, it's very difficult for me to find mental health support and services as well. And then, and then even pay for it, it's, it's quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's all tied up in, in the stigma that's around like mental health as well as being like, oh, it's not, it's not just if I went and broke my arm or broke my leg, I would go get that fixed. I, I think of it as exactly the same thing. It's like, I need to talk to a doctor. I need to talk and get, why not use all the resources available um, if you can. Right. And, and so there's got, there has to be a lot more services that are provided for people's mental health in the bigger, in the bigger space. Um, So the last piece of the framework that they recommend is operationalizing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility norms, policies, and programs. So 
I'm sure to pretty sure you've heard this like ad nauseum in a lot of ways, what DEI is or DEIA with accessibility or the word belonging. It is a really big buzzword. And there's a lot of cult conversation about this woke culture that's happening and a fight on kind of like the liberal left. But really what what this under underlies all of this is ultimately I want to live in a world and we want to live in a world where we don't need to have something where it says, let's get along better together. Let's have diversity. Let's have equity because we've achieved that. And it's a place that's open and transparent and there's empathy and compassion there. And everyone is allowed to get what they need and the way that they need it. But we're really far away from that vision. And that's a dream. And we need to figure out what it, it where we are right now and where we need to go. And every place is different. There's different contexts. And so I'm leading that with one of my conversations with my um, a community college system right now in rural Pennsylvania, where we're moving beyond checkboxes to work towards action and designing that organization of the future. And I was like, what does that really mean? What does belonging mean for you? And that's different in different contexts. And so we'll link this in the show notes. There is this great case study that I found from Cornell University, where they're trying to create a sense of belonging for faculty and staff. Some of the actions and initiatives they they take at Cornell, and we're trying to bring in and talk to and engage to see where we want to go is creating intentional connections, bringing people together to provide an environment where people belong. Um, think about how teams are structured, how can people bring things together, um, building on trust. How do you build and grow at the speed of trust is something that I talk a lot about in, in my spaces and what does trust mean? So inviting other perspectives into the conversation, um, engaging in storytelling in a bigger way. And one thing we're looking at is what I'm saying, seeing the system. So we look at the community around us, what are they saying and how is that affecting our microcosm of our space that we're in and how can we kind of name it and then also um, start start changing and, and engaging in a bigger way. So that's some of the stuff that I've been thinking about in D&I, I write about um, and I'm going to write more about as I go forward, but been using some of the frameworks around empathy and action in this work and doing workshops to understand our identity and inheritance and things like that. So really, really fun work we've been doing. Yeah, it's. I think what's important is understanding that each human is unique. They bring a unique perspective, a unique brain, a unique lived experience. I, I say, just like our fingerprints, our lived, lived experience is there's no two same lived experiences. Even with twins, identical twins, they have different lived experiences as they grow and change. And so knowing that, it's we are already just by being individually unique, we are we can we are diverse, even in homogenous cultures, there's diversity in that. So there it's just adding more of that perspective and then setting up policies that remove the bias of the system that was built on, I think is so important to feeling that safe and, and secure protection from harm, protection from microaggressions, protect understanding like the language we've been saying has so much harm built in that we need to 
rethink and and be okay to getting that feedback like oh you said that i know you you you're coming from a place of love but that felt negative to me or that felt harmful to me so these policies that we put in place so who are we hiring how are we looking at people where who's how are we measuring that how are we measuring how are we making sure the interviews are unbiased and the reviews of the resumes are unbiased how are promotions are unbiased how are we making sure that the um, salaries are are matched and that people are paid equitably. So many different policies that come into play. And so I think this is um, really, really uh, important in building protection from harm. So in summary, we all, all have the need to feel protected from harm, whether it's at workplaces or at home and or in our lives, in our communities. When we feel unsafe, we become defensive. We let, We are less rational and jump into modes that might lead to poor choices. It is in everyone's best interest to build a culture and organizations and workplaces that prioritize physical security, psychological safety, provide space and time for rest, normalize and support mental health, like our physical health, because a lot of companies give you gym memberships, and operationalize policies that support inclusion of diverse perspective, support accessibility needs, and create a culture where people feel a sense of belonging. I don't have the data, but I believe, and I think, if we focused on this, I feel like the productivity improvement and the success improvement and the returns are much higher than the fight they are doing just to not do it. And the, and the, and the, and the money and the opportunity they're leaving on the table because they're missing out on these amazing things from people feeling safe and leaning in. So today, we'll leave you to reflect on spaces you've, you feel protected from harm and ones that you do not. And understand that there are differences on how you can contribute to building cultures, organizations, and communities that continuously Empathy work Power Up is produced by Amy J. Wilson and Kevin so, Shaw. The question we're going to leave you with to reflect on love for in what ways do you not feel physically or psychologically you can reach safe? Amy at Given what we Amy talked about J. in this episode, Wilson what would make Kevin you feel safe and secure Shaw, in your workplace? Kevin.